Good evening, and welcome to the second lecture of the second week of Rare Book School, 1988. My name is Terry Bellinger, and I'm the speaker. <laughs> Extra illustrating a book consists of inserting into or binding up with it portraits, landscapes, and other works of art, having a reference to its contents. Thus, one might take a copy of, say, Cunningham's biography of Nell Gwynne and insert or bind in it at appropriate places in the text, engravings, or other illustrations showing this celebrated restoration actress in her various stage roles, portraying pictures of Charles II and his court, showing scenes of 17th century London life, and so on. The result may be thought of as a methodized scrapbook, an individually assembled combination of text and illustration. The practice of extra illustrating books is sometimes called Grangerizing after the Reverend James Granger, the 18th century victor of Shiplake in Oxfordshire. In 1769, Granger published in two volumes a book with the long title, A Biographical History of England from Egbert the Great to the Revolution of 1688, consisting of characters dispersed in different classes and adapted to a methodized catalog of engraved British portrait heads intended as an essay towards reducing our biographies to a system and a help to the knowledge of portraits with a variety of anecdotes and memoirs of a great number of persons not to be found in any biographical work with a preface showing the utility <laughs> of a collection of engraved portraits to supply this defect and answer the various purposes of medals. Granger's book was a collection of brief biographical sketches of those persons for whom engraved portraits or other representations were then available, that is, in England in 1769. Thus the book formed, to use Granger's own description, a numerous catalog of the portraits of our countrymen. Granger worked from his personal collection of some 14,000 engravings of figures celebrated in English history, assembled information about these personages, and published their biographies in an order related to their stations in life and their accomplishments. Biographies of English royalty came first, as was proper. These were followed by chapters on worthies of the church, peers, the clergy, soldiers, politicians, celebrated actors, and so on, and on, and on, concluding with persons of both sexes, chiefly of the lowest orders of the people, remarkable from only one circumstance in their lives, namely such as lived a great age, deformed persons, convicts, and so on. <laughs> that was the introduction. We now allow latecomers to come sit down. Come on. Granger identified and described specific engravings, and his book served as a buying guide, especially during a period when the bibliographical control of books, let alone of prints, was in its infancy. Indeed, a copy of Granger is the foundation stone of any collection of reference books dealing with old English prints, and for this reason we can find a medallion bust of James Granger in the frieze decorating the outside of the National Portrait Gallery behind the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square in London. The pages of Granger's book were printed on one side only in order to encourage readers to assemble their own collections of the engravings he mentioned and then insert them into their copies at the appropriate place. 
Even so, industrious collectors ended up with volumes, the bulk of which, practically speaking, necessitated disbinding the original volumes and rebinding them in an enlarged form with text and illustrations alternating. The first person known to have Grangerized a copy of Granger's biographical history was Richard Bull of Ongar in Essex. In 1770, a year after the publication of Granger's compendium, he had extended his copy from the original two to 19 volumes. Richard Bull's technique was one typical to all extra illustrators ever since. You read the book, you made up a list of all the persons, places, and events therein mentioned, you found copies of the appropriate prints, and you then assembled the components into an attractive whole. To enhance the appearance of the assemblage, you could ask your binder to decorate both the text and the print pages with surrounding borders of ruled lines to create frames or compartments, which would then be tinted with watercolors. Extra illustration was not without its problems. What if there were no existing print of a particular person prominently mentioned in your base volume? Richard Bullivangar on occasion solved this problem by commissioning entirely new engravings where none were otherwise available. Another problem was that if, as Richard Bull did with his Granger, you were extending two volumes to 19 volumes, you were going to be short 17 title pages. <laughs> Sometimes Richard Bull simply acquired extra title pages from the printer of the original book. On occasion, he had additional title pages specifically printed up locally, and sometimes he had manuscript copies of the original title pages made, by no means necessarily an amateurish solution in those days of expert pen facsimilists. A further problem was that some of the prints assembled for Grangerizing might be larger in size than the volume to be illustrated. You couldn't insert them without having their edges sticking out. To cut the prints down to make them fit was unthinkable. To fold them in half before binding them it, in order to make them fit was an almost equally unattractive solution. A better way was to inlay the text pages of your base volume into larger sheets of paper so that all of the margins of the resulting volume or volumes, prints and text pages alike, would be uniform in size. To be sure, enlarging text pages to make them uniform in size with the engravings or other illustrations usually meant that your binder had to go to the elaborate and rather expensive trouble of cutting rectangular holes into larger receiving sheets of paper, precisely shaving down the edges of the holes and of the text pages to be inserted, and then inserting them so that they could be read on both sides. One way to avoid this problem was to go to the printer of the book, presumably in advance of publication, and arrange for a set of sheets printed on one side only. Another, an after-the-fact solution, and one frequently practiced, especially in the 19th century, was to have your binder split the pages. That is, he would liberally spread paste on both sides of the leaf to be split and make up a sandwich consisting of the pasted page in the middle and two pieces of strong muslin, one on either side. The assemblage was pressed and dried, and the binder would then separate the two pieces of muslin, a process which, if all went well, would leave one surface of the text page attached to one piece of muslin and the other surface attached to the other piece. These could then be soaked off the muslin and pasted down to the appropriate sheets to be used in the final product. Perhaps this is as good a time as any to emphasize that the extra illustration of books was a very common activity for well over a century. The Chicago printer and book collector, John M. Wing, 
went so far, James Wells tells us, as to approach the University of Chicago about establishing an endowed chair of extra illustration at that university. <laughs> this plan did not succeed. To the later benefit of the Newberry Library, present possessors of the John M. Wing Foundation for the History of Printing, perhaps in part because Mr. Wing liked to extra-illustrate naughty 18th-century French books with even naughtier 18th-century French engravings, an activity hardly calculated to please the strict Baptist founder of the University of Chicago, John D. Rockefeller. The New Yorker Daniel D. Treadwell, excuse me, Daniel M. Treadwell, wrote a substantial book on the subject of extra illustration, privately published in 1892, and entitled A Monograph on Privately Illustrated Books, A Plea for Bibliomania. Inevitably, it was issued both in a regular and large paper edition. <laughs> Treadwell begins with a history of extra illustration in America. The institution of private illustrating, he says, as he calls extra illustrating, is of too recent an origin for a history. The greater part of the work of extra illustration in this country has been accomplished within the past 15 years, that is to say, since about uh, 17, uh, since about 1875 or 1880. Treadwell gives a collector-by-collector -collector description of recent and current extra illustration activity. There was, for example, Mr. D.M. Stouffer, who was interested in the history of the city of Philadelphia. He took a succession of articles by Westcott on that city, which appeared over a period of more than 50 years in the Philadelphia Sunday Dispatch, arranging for proof sheets printed on one side only, which he mounted in double columns on specially prepared 10 by 13 inch sheets of paper pre-printed with border lines and heads. He then incorporated into his text nearly 1,000 pen and ink and watercolor sketches of his own devising from original drawings and paintings especially of old Philadelphia houses and of family portraits not available as engravings. To this he added any number of old maps, playbills, lottery tickets, broadsides, newspaper clippings, paper money, and other printed documents. But this was only the beginning. The heart of Mr. Stouffer's effort was the incorporation into his text of more than 3,000 autograph letters and documents of persons concerned with the early history of Philadelphia, including nearly every Pennsylvania signer of the Declaration of Independence. In all, he contrived a production of 2,600 pages consisting of more than 8,000 illustrations. It is a monumental work, said Treadwell. We put the value, he said, of the set at $80,000, and this was in 1892. Lest you think this figure totally unrealistic, by the way, consider the fact that a single batch of 95 prints gathered for his extra illustrating pastimes by Richard Bull of Ongar, the first Grangerizer, was sold at auction at Sotheby's in London in 1973 for £109,000, or more than a quarter of a million dollars today, surely. Treadwell's book is full of impressive examples of extra illustration. The New York theatrical producer Augustin Daly, for example, who extended a copy of the 1753 Dublin edition of the Douay Bible to 50 volumes, incorporating into it thousands of the choicest engravings, including etchings by Hogarth, Rembrandt, and Durer, plus original drawings by Buick, Rembrandt, and Blake. It is a mammoth work, said Treadwell. Augustin Daly's piece de resistance in this genre was, however, his edition of Joseph Ireland's Records of the New York Stage from 1750 to 1860, extended to 33 thick folio volumes, including views of theaters, newspaper sketches, biographies and obituaries, portraits of celebrated men and women of the stage, portraits of celebrated men and women upon whose lives plays had been written and performed on the New York stage, and several thousand portraits 
of authors, actors, actresses, plus a great number of autographs of the same. Treadwell reserves his highest praise for Dr. Thomas Addis Emmett, who extended a copy of Sanderson's biographies of the signers of the Declaration of Independence from nine to 20 large volumes, incorporating into them 14 watercolors of American scenery done by English artists who had accompanied the British troops to America during the Revolution, the original warrant of George III with his signature ordering out the first troops to suppress the insurrection in America, many state papers, including a contemporary manuscript copy of the private rules for conducting business in the Continental Congress, hundreds of prints and drawings, 1,800 portraits, and more than 3,000 autographs and letters, including what was then said to be the finest collection of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in existence. Treadwell comments, six months may be spent with profit on this wonderful book, which for completeness and detail we think to be the most remarkable historical work in the world. The historical value of the material brought together by Dr. Emmett, says Treadwell, is very great indeed, and it is a happy thing for the future student of American history that men of means and culture take pleasure in these collections. American history seems to have been the most popular subject for extra illustration in the late 19th century, in America at least. A particularly, popularly, a particularly popular book for this purpose was Irving's Life of George Washington. William Menzies owned a copy which he purchased at the 1866 Morrill sale for $2,000, already extra illustrated with 1,100 prints, including 145 of George Washington alone. Menzies further extended the book to 1,700 prints, including 220 of George Washington, plus 92 autograph letters, including 10 written by Washington. This copy was sold at the Menzies sale in 1876 for $4,000. It was eventually acquired by the Boston collector Curtis Gold, sorry, Curtis Guild, who further enriched the volumes with battle plans and views of the Revolutionary War, muster rolls, many original watercolor drawings, nine more George Washington letters, bringing the total up to 19, plus other manuscripts of Washington and also of Generals Marion, Sumter, Lincoln, Knox, Wayne, Putnam, Gates, Burgoyne, and Gage, as well as of Benedict Arnold, John Jay, John and Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and Thomas Jefferson. Each of the resulting 11 volumes was about the size of an unabridged Webster's Dictionary. Gill's massive volumes compare favorably with those of the London print seller James Gibbs of Great Newport Street, whose passion was extra illustrating the Bible, which he extended to more than 60 folio volumes, each so thick that he could hardly lift them himself from his counter. The number of Bibles he cut up in erecting this monument, Frederick Locker Lamson observed, would have satisfied even the atheist Tom Paine. <laughs> American history and the Bible were popular subjects for extra illustration, but books on any subject involving the mention of people and plates would do. Byron's English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, for example, or, for the ambitious, the complete works of Shakespeare or Boswell's Life of Johnson. One collector assembled 117 different engraved portraits of Johnson for the, his copy. Another popular book for extra illustration was, Wal was Walton's Complete Angler. No less a collector than Robert Hoe extended a copy of the 1836 Sir Harris Nicholas edition of Walton from two to 10 volumes, adding 1,300 illustrations to it. Robert Hoe, indeed, was the king of Waltonians. In all, he was responsible for the extra illustration of 30 copies of The Complete Angler. Robert Hoe was by no means the only celebrated collector to indulge himself in the joys of extra illustration in the late 19th century. 
Mrs. Norton Q. Pope, Mrs. Abby Pope of Brooklyn, had a copy of the James Parton Life and Times of Benjamin Franklin, extended from one to eight volumes, and included 249 portraits of Benjamin Franklin and 21 original letters by Franklin. J. Pierpont Morgan's copy of the autobiography of John Trumbull included autograph letters of Thomas Paine, Lafayette, Louis XVI, Jefferson, Franklin, and Washington. The London printer William Bowyer II worked for more than 30 years on extending a copy of Macklin's Folio Bible, amassing more than 7,000 prints representing the works of more than 600 different engravers and bound up in 45 volumes. And then there was Alexander Sutherland of London who enriched Clarendon's History of the Rebellion and Burnett's Reformation by 19,224 engravings at a cost, it is said, of 12,000 pounds. That is, uh, $50,000 in $1820. The resulting 67 elephant folio volumes were by Sutherland's widow presented to the Bodleian Library in 1837, where they may still be seen. The practice of extra illustration was, of course, hardly restricted to the 19th century, nor to the 18th century either, for that matter. There were Grangerizers long before Granger. For instance, Nicholas Farrar, who enriched a biblical concordance with a very great number of prints engraved by the best masters during the reign of Charles I. And in his preface to the biographical history of England, James Granger himself instances the examples of Evelyn, Ashmole, and other 17th century worthies who indulged in the practice. Almost no subject was thought unsusceptible to extra illustration. Augustus Tudberg of Brooklyn, Treadwell tells us, in 1892 was now engaged in illustrating the operas of Richard, of Richard Wagner. This, said Treadwell, is an entirely new and unwrought field for extra illustration, but it is certainly very promising of noble results. Or one might, shades of John M. Wing, specialize in the extra illustration of erotica. We hear of an edition of the Decameron, extended from two to four volumes, with 230 plates characteristic of the text. <laughs> the result, says Treadwell, is beyond all contrast the most voluptuous book we've ever seen. I have not seen a copy. The same collector, not, uh, whose name is not given, extended the quarto edition of Arpane Knight's essay on the worship of Priapus, the result being, in Treadwell's opinion, a beautiful and in all candor, we must say, a worthy book of incalculable value to the historian and antiquarian. Treadwell also mentions a copy of Mrs. Mary de la Riviere Manley's scandalous secret memoirs and manners of several persons of quality of both sexes or the new Atlantis, extended from three volumes by the insertion of 180 prints, which for righteousness' sake, says Treadwell, had better forever remain undescribed. <laughs> One of the greatest problems encountered in extra illustration was that of reconciling the conflicting forces of taste and completeness. How much extra illustration was enough extra illustration? We are told of one extra illustrator who was able to produce 743 different engravings of Charles I. An impressive number, but surely one which rather interrupts the flow of a text especially when followed 743 engravings in some pages of text later by, as it was, 552 engravings of Charles II <laughs> and 431 engravings of William uh, III. Discriminating extra illustrators, or to use Treadwell's term, discriminating private illustrators of books were concerned not to overload the text with superfluous pictures, 
so that a beautiful text was entirely lost sight of in a wilderness of illustration. Dr. Charles E. Banks of Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts, told Treadwell, I do not believe in making a picture scrapbook of my volumes. My purpose is to illustrate the text of the work in hand as the author would do if the public would sustain the expense. Books other than historical should have no more than one illustration per leaf of text, Treadwell says. There must always be a proper balance between the two. As a good example, he instances a volume of essays on portrait paintings and engravings, illustrated by 110 engraved portraits, in all cases being examples of prints described in the text. Thus, the text refers to a self-portrait of the artist Isaac Oliver engaged by Miller. The text is illustrated by the original print of Miller from Oliver's painting. The text speaks of a portrait of Miss Kitty Fisher painted by Sir Joshua Reynolds and engraved in mezzotint by Watson. The text is illustrated by a copy of the mezzotint. mezzotint. This, says Treadwell, is a full exemplification of the mutual relation between text and print, where the text is as illustrative of the print as the print is of the text. Treadwell discusses the advisability of using photographs as opposed to engravings in other prints as a vehicle for extra illustration. In general, he allows them, though suggesting they certainly are not the most desirable illustration for books, and for three reasons. Because they fade, because they tend to be too thick, remember this is 1892, and because they are not works of art. They should not, he says, in any event, be mixed with engravings or with drawings and sketches, unless they are all by the same artist. Professor William Todd of the University of Texas informs me that a common pastime in the second half of the 19th century was the extra illustrating with photographs of various Tauchnitz editions of books having to do especially with Italy, notably Hawthorne's Marble Fawn, Bulwer-Lytton's Last Days of Pompeii, George Eliot's Romola, and so on. Here the distinction between the illustrated and the extra illustrated book became rather blurred since Italian booksellers would sell you the Tauchnitz editions, either penny plain or tuppence colored. You could either buy copies with the photographs already inserted, or you could buy separately the unadorned text and also whatever photographs cut to the right size you particularly fancied, and then have your own binder assemble them in whatever way you wished. Bibliographically speaking, the results are, of course, a nightmare. The more so since customers, or rather the dealers who specialized in the productions of these photographs, had various standards of prudery when photographing antique statues. Their photographers, accordingly, made use of a selection of white plaster fig leaves of various sizes, from the décolletage of the smallest leaf to the modest and wholly concealing uh, full fig of the larger sizes. The resulting photographs of the statue were virtually identical, except as regards the size of their diapers. <laughs> I am very much looking forward to Professor Todd's bibliographical description of this phenomenon when his bibliography of Tauchnitz editions appears, which it will do very shortly. 19th century private illustrators believed that one extra illustrated... Let me try that again. 19th century private illustrators believed that one extra illustrated books to annotate and interpret a text and to animate its subject matter, to decorate it artistically, and as a result, to gratify a personal vanity and possess that which no other man could obtain. Thus, the rewards of extra illustration, including those derived from the pleasures of co-authorship, 
Treadwell states firmly in 1892 that the refined dissipation of privately illustrating books will continue to attract collectors forever. But Treadwell was wrong. The extra illustration or private illustration of books no longer much attracts collectors. And as a practice, it seems to have been frequently attacked almost from the time of the Reverend James Granger in the 1860s, in 1760s. In the 1780s, for example, Edward Romore suggested that if this taste for prints and thievery continues, let private owners in public libraries look well to their books, for there will not remain a valuable book ungarbled by their connoisseuring villainy. The most celebrated attack on Grangerization is that of the Scotsman John Hill Burton. Writing in 1860 in his book, The Book Hunter, Hill Burton shows how the truly conscientious Grangerite goes about his business. Suppose he wished to illustrate the following, says John Hill Burton, how doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour and gather honey all the day from every opening flower. The first thing to be done, says Hill Burton, is to collect every engraved portrait of the author Isaac Watts. The next, to get hold of any engravings of the house in which he was born or houses in which he lived. Then will come all kinds of views of Southampton, <laughs> of its Gothic gate, of its older than Gothic walls. To go but a step beyond such commonplaces, there is a traditional story, says Hilburton, about the boyhood of Isaac, which has been told as follows. He took precociously to rhyming. It happened that this practice was very offensive to his father, a practical man, who, finding admonition useless, resolved to stop it in an effectual manner. Under chastisement, the design songster abjured his propensity in the following not very hopeful shape. O oh, father, do some pity take, and I will no more verses make. <laughs> Hilburton continues, it is not likely that, that this simple domestic scene has been engraved. <laughs> the private illustrator will therefore require to get a picture of it for his own special use and will add immensely to the value of his treasure while he gives scope to the genius of a Cruikshank or a Dickie Doyle. We are yet, it will be observed, this is still a quotation from Hill Burton, only on the threshold. We have next to illustrate the substance of the poetry. All kinds of engravings of bees and of beehives will be appropriate and will be followed by portraits of great writers on bees <laughs> and views of Mount Hibla and other honey districts. Some scripture prints, illustrative of the history of Samson, who had to do with honey and bees, will be appropriate, as well as any illustrations of the fable and the, of the bear and the bees. A still more appropriate form of illustration may, however, be drawn upon by remembering that a periodical called The Bee was edited by Dr. Anderson. And it is important to observe that the name was adopted in the very spirit which inspired Watts. In both instances, the most respected of all winged insects was brought forward as the type of industry. Respected of all, of the type of industry. Portraits then of Dr. Anderson and any engravings that can be connected with himself and his pursuits will have their place in the collection. It will occur perhaps to the intelligent extra illustrator that Dr. Anderson was the grandfather of Sir James Outram and he will thus have the satisfaction of opening his collection for all illustrations of the career of that distinguished officer. 
When the illustrator comes to the last line, which invites him to add to what he has already collected, a representation of every opening flower, <laughs> it is easy to see that he has a rich garden of delights before him. Thus John Hill Burton. He would have been amused by a note that I received from Gerald Gottlieb, then the curator of early children's books at the Pierpont Morgan Library. Learning that I was about to deliver a lecture on the subject of extra illustration, he wrote me as follows. In the early days of our investigations into children's books at the Morgan Library, many curious examples came to light of what might be referred to as vegetable extra illustration. Pressed between the leaves of children's books of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, we discovered not only flower petals and entire blossoms, but ferns, leaves, herbs, and the occasional growth that seemed to come from the plant world, but was otherwise quite unidentifiable. There was only rarely any clear-cut relationship between all of this vegetable matter and the pages in which it was preserved. Judging from the publication dates of the books involved, this form of extra illustration seemed to begin germination in about 1690 and to achieve its full flowering in about 1850. I thought, concludes Gottlieb, you might be interested in the phenomenon for your uh, lecture, even though it is surely no more than fringe or herbaceous border lunacy. The principal objections to the practice of extra illustration, then, are these. It produces large, unwieldy volumes. It destroys the bibliographical integrity of the volume being illustrated. And, and most sinful, it encourages the mutilation and destruction of the books from which illustrations are robbed in order to enrich the project at hand. Hilberton contemplated Granger, he said, with a kind of mysterious awe as a sort of literary Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan who has spread terror and ruin around him. He destroys unknown quantity of books to supply portraits or other illustrations, says Hilberton, to a single volume of his own. And as it is always not known concerning any book that he has been at work on it, many a common book buyer has cursed him on inspecting his own last bargain and finding it is deficient in an interesting portrait or plate. Writing in 1892, Lawrence Hutton, on the other hand, defends extra illustrators, or is at least prepared to say that they aren't all bad. He points out that thousands of ephemeral books and pamphlets have contained portraits of some worthy or views of an old theater or a long-demolished church or palace or public building, which tells better the story of their originals than all that their contemporaries ever wrote concerning them. And except for these prints, the appearance of these originals would be as much a matter of uncertainty now and quite as incomprehensible as is the art of a dead actor or the habits of the dodo. These were not saved for posterity by the books in which they were bound, but by the collectors who realized their worth and who plucked them from the burning or from the rag and bottle shop. Hutton continues, brandy peaches are not so good, perhaps, as ripe peaches, but they are better than dried peaches or no peaches at all and they are available and valuable when fresh peaches cannot be had. On the shelves of the closets of hundreds of enthusiastic collectors of jam are jars of clingstones and Morris Whites, which would have comforted and refreshed no man if they had been left to rot on the trees on which they grew. Many writers on the subject have suggested that grangerization may be an acceptable or at least a relatively inoffensive form of activity if certain rules are observed. In particular, Grangerizers should select their material only from books that are already imperfect 
or from unbound periodicals, no part of which is likely to survive otherwise. Newspaper clippings are equally fair game, as are engravings and other illustrations separately published and never part of a book. And even Holbrook Jackson suggests in his Anatomy of Bibliomania that if Grangerizing adds interest to a volume by reasonable augmentation, I see no harm done. It is when Grangerizing turns into Grangeritis, Jackson continues, that the damage occurs. A morbid state, he says, because of an inflamed ambition to push the illustration of a theme to its furthest conclusions in each and every one of its essential and inessential ramifications. In this way, madness lies, not only in hectic research and wild pursuit of materials, but in the character of the passion which seeks to substitute pictures for thoughts and the written word, in itself a notable relapse into barbarism, which is a general symptom of inferior minds as they who promote picture theaters and picture papers will know. Grangerization flourished for more than a hundred years, and it was not attacks like that of Romores or John Hill Burton which caused its decline and virtual disappearance. I wish to suggest three reasons for the failure of the practice. The rise of a belief in the bibliographical integrity of a book is originally issued, the trivialization of, it, of illustration caused by the technical advances of the 19th century, and changing economics in the bookbinding business. Collectors and librarians have changed their attitude toward original condition dramatically in the past hundred years or so. As late as 1918, we find William Clements, London bookseller, writing to him about various volumes eagerly awaited in Michigan, but not yet shipped from London. The bookseller, who was Henry Stevens the Younger, had sold Clements from stock a number of unbound volumes of Debris Voyages. Stevens writes to Clements. The bookseller writes to the client in 1918. I don't know whether you've ever seen any of these volumes in the original state in which they generally come down to us. They are usually in a very inferior and unattractive condition. The paper is very soft and is generally more or less foxed or brown stained so that cleaning and sizing are almost always absolutely necessary. Very few parts come without some defect in the plates, such as a bad impression or a crooked imposition in the text, or worn and defective maps. It is only by combining two or more copies, changing various leaves, and cleaning and sizing the whole that a good, perfect copy can be obtained. But beginning in this country, perhaps in the 1870s, certainly by the 1890s, a new generation of collectors, profiting by half a century of American book collecting experience and also benefiting from the searching bibliographical studies of such men as Henry Harris, began, as Carl Cannon said, to be no longer willing to call everything with a title page and a binding a book. Collations became important. Large copies shouldered their smaller brothers off the shelves, and points began being printed in auctioneers' catalogs, that is, miscellaneous peculiarities in a book which separate earlier from later printings or otherwise distinguish one copy from another. Original condition became a matter of central concern. Casualness about sophisticated or made-up copies began to die out rapidly in the first decades of the 20th century, and collectors began to prefer books in their original bindings rather than in later bindings, however sumptuous. They also began to prefer their books illustrated only as their original authors and publishers had intended them. Extra illustration became suspect simply because the result, however elegant, was other than the book as originally issued. A second reason for the decline of the practice of extra illustration concerns 19th century technical developments in book illustration. 
By the mid-19th century, the multicolored, cheap chromolithograph becomes generally available. Shortly thereafter, photographically generated and mechanically produced methods of illustration sweep away both copper and wood engraving as necessary or even particularly desirable methods for illustrating books, or of anything else for that matter, and hot on the heels of the line and halftone block comes multicolor halftone processes, both letterpress and gravure, which facilitate the production of the glossy magazines that are as much as anything the characteristic feature of the 20th century book arts. In 1870, an illustrated book tended to be an upmarket product. There were, of course, chapbooks and other cheaply produced, extensively illustrated materials. And with the advent of the power press for magazine printing at mid-century, it is true, illustrated magazines like Harper's Weekly achieved enormous circulations. But the great watershed decades clearly are the 1880s and 1890s. By 1900 or so, photomechanically reproduced extra illustrate, excuse me, photo mechanically illustrations were reproduced everywhere. And the idea of the individual and discriminating collection of illustrations for the purpose of grangerization must surely have lost some of its savor at the same time that it became decreasingly necessary for other reasons. We now had the coffee table book, extra illustrated to be sure, but extra illustrated in the office by the publisher and in the plant by the printer, not at home by the purchaser. The third and final reason I wish to suggest as a cause for the decline of extra illustration is an economic one. As late as the end of the 19th century, it was commonplace for book collectors to have extensive relationships with their book binders. Collectors routinely sent books, both new and old, to their binders to have them bound, to have them rebound or refurbished, or perhaps to have their extra illustrated volumes put together. The cost of inlaying and onlaying materials has increased spectacularly in the 20th century, as have the expenses of tipping in illustrations or other extraneous manner, matter, washing or restoring prints, and silking fragile material, to say nothing of the cost of even the simplest full leather binding. The escalating expenses of this work increasingly discourage collectors from ordering complicated bindings at the same time that changing collecting patterns encourage these collectors to leave their books alone anyway, as issued in original condition. Thus the rise and fall of the extra illustrated book. My own investigations into the subject have convinced me that the practice is not nearly as vicious as I once thought it to be. That book mentioned by Daniel Treadwell in his monograph on privately illustrated books, that volume of essays called Portrait Paintings and Engravings haunts me. It was, you remember, illustrated by 110 engravings, in all cases being examples of the prints described in the text. This is the best illustrated book we've ever seen, said Treadwell, and I find it hard to disagree with him. So you see, I am in danger of becoming lunatic on the subject of pictures and books. Like Alice, I tend to wonder what is the use of a book without pictures. And if the author and publisher don't provide those pictures, what is to prevent me from turning into a private illustrator and providing them for myself? Thank you. We will now, uh, if you will, uh, cooperate in the following manner. Uh, I like to tell my students about the Hawthorne effect. The Hawthorne effect uh, is 
an effect caused as follows. You alter what you're studying by the fact of your studying it. If you study the efficiencies of worker, if you study the efficiency of workers by going around with a clipboard, making notes in the plan, the act of studying it increases the efficiency for obvious reasons. The example I use in class is that if you uh, wander in your hip boots into a cage containing baby chickens to study their typical behavior, you'll discover that the typical behavior of a baby chicken is to huddle in terror against the sides of the cage. If you would all have the kindness to huddle in terror at the sides of this cage for a moment or two, then my staff will remove the chairs. If you will then part like the Red Sea to allow the food to sweep in <laughs> from the kitchen, we will, presto changeo, uh, be in the middle of a reception. And finally, uh, many of you have asked, t-shirts and aprons are available for sale. Rare Book School t-shirts and aprons in 522 as soon as the food sweeps through. Thank you.